0: Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Casperson. you, guys. Welcome, welcome. So this is the February live podcast. I'm Kelly Kasperson. I'm so glad you guys are here. So to anybody who's listening on the podcast when we actually upload this, there's a bunch of people here because they're on my email list, and then they get the link to the webinar, and then they can do live Q&A. So I am am a urologist. I'm a medical doctor. I am not your medical doctor. Even if I am, I can't give you medical advice on this platform. This is for education and entertainment purposes only, which I absolutely love saying. but raise your hand if you want to come on for coaching. What I'm going to do is I'm going to change your name and I'm going to keep your video off or you can keep your video off. So this can be as anonymous as you want it to be um, so that you can get great benefit and still keep it pretty darn anonymous, which is a very nice feature. So raise your hand. I will kind of pull you up in the uh, order that the hands are received. And I'm going to change your name. The other thing that we can do is there's a chat box or a question box, a Q and a box, and I'll be doing those too. And we'll do about 45 minutes of coaching and Q and a, and we'll see what sort of fun we can have. There we go. There you go. Hi. Hi. Thanks for picking me. Totally. (laughs) Thanks for being here. What do you want to talk about?
1: So I have two issues that I'd like you to address. Um, So I'll just give like a quick background, a little bit of a history. And, um, and I know you're not a, like, you can't give medical advice or whatever. So I'm 60 years old. I delivered three babies in, you know, my earlier years. Um, at the age of 35, I was told that my uterus was oversized or prolapsed or something like that. Had my uterus removed at 35. Um, Then I, a few years afterwards, I started experiencing a lot of pain, like pelvic pain, and I kind of just dealt with it for years. And I started tracking it and realized that it was, it was definitely cyclical, had all the symptoms of endometriosis, but nobody would agree with me because I didn't have a uterus anyway, at the age of 49, I went and I just said, take my ovaries out because they're, they are connected to this pain, cause like I said, it was cyclical. And when she went in there, she did find endometriosis kind of all wrapped around whatever was there outside of my uterus. I did not receive any hormone replacement therapy. Um, honestly, it wasn't, I don't even remember it being discussed with me, like an option. So I kind of, I did go into pretty quickly the hot flashes and, and all of that for the menopausal symptoms. I have also been diagnosed with osteoporosis, pretty severe um, number T scores. Um, I was reluctant to take medication. I did take medication for a couple of years. I took Evista. So that's, that is the background. What has happened since then? So 2000, I, I haven't been sexually active in almost six years. I lost my husband. And in 2019, I was at my son's wedding and was like dancing all night, got up in the morning. I'm like, what is this hanging between my legs? And my friend who's an OBGYN, I I talked to her about it and she said, it sounds like prolapse. So it was indeed, I waited about a year. I went to um, a, a gynecological urologist. And um, I wasn't really pleased with that appointment. Basically, she's like, well, we can sew your vagina closed. I'm like, that doesn't sound like a good option to me. Um, Anyway, I didn't, haven't done anything about it. So my two part question, my two things I'd like you to address is one um, the, the going, is it too late for me to start hormone therapy? And, And another thing was there was all of that discussion about it being, um, dangerous. My sister had breast cancer and that kind of a thing. But at this point, I've been listening to you and I feel like it would be of total benefit to me if, if not only just the cream, but you know, whatever, whatever else I can do. So it's the hormone replacement. And the other thing is this thing with the prolapse, you know, is it, is surgery the only option you know, what else can I do? Pelvic floor exercises, I know. And if I do decide to become sexually active in, in a penetrative way, is that going to be a problem for me?
0: Great questions. We're going to help so many people by talking about this. So thank you so much for your bravery for bringing it forward. Cause this is incredibly common stuff. I mean, this is like my day job, right? So it's, it, it's, I, it's all the time. And I can't tell you the percentage of people who think it's just a, their problem, or I like to say a personality flaw, right? Like when I go to the dentist, like my fear of having a cavity, cause what I make it mean about me, like me having a cavity is a personality flaw in my book. And so many people tie that into like their pelvic health is like, there's something wrong instead of, I like to be like, First of all, I like to blame the kid with the biggest head because I think it's funny, but it's like, you know, we're upright animals. We have gravity. We lift and we cough and we poop and we sneeze. And then we put these huge, huge heads through our vaginas, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, and then we lose our estrogen, which is really important in elasticity and connective tissue and tissue integrity and all of that stuff. So incredibly common things that happen to many, many, many people, only to normalize it for everybody who's listening. Um, So step 1 is hormones the question is hormones past 10 years past menopause is kind of the the big question that we have to answer there so what we what we know is it's individualized i think personally for a very healthy woman who's about 10 years you know here 10 years 11 years 12 years you know ish 10 ish years post menopause that it's probably still quite safe. Now, there's always risks to taking hormones, right? And what we know is the closer you are to the actual menopause, for you, it would be your surgical menopause when the ovaries came out, the closer you are to that, the the more benefit you're going to see from being on the hormones, mm-hmm. right? Which is just always an interesting thing to think about in people who choose not to be on hormones. It's like, Well, that's a choice also. And things happen to your body because you're not on hormones. So no matter what we choose, things are happening. Right. Uh Um, And I think, you know, I actually have a family member who's in the exact same boat. She's like, listen, I'm really healthy. I care about my life in my sixties and seventies going forward. I want to maintain my bone health. I want to maintain my brain. I want to, you know, decrease my risk of diabetes, all the things that we know estrogen is very good for. So, the guidelines are best best benefit, least risk in that less than 10-year window, right? Well, then you say, what, what do you do about the, the 10-ish window, right? And then I think it's really based upon your overall risk factors, right? Like certainly somebody who's already had a heart attack, already had a stroke, is smoking cigarettes, is already on three blood pressure meds, like her risk is going to be a lot higher of the risks of hormones, which is increased risk of heart disease or stroke or blood clot. Right. But the healthier you are, the less you're going to have those risks anyways, and the, the less likely estrogen going to be increasing those risks for you. Now, what you have to do, which I think is challenging, but better now than it was 10 years ago, is find a person who's willing to say, hey, this is an educated person who is as healthy as she can be. She understands there's risks and benefits. Let's try it out. Who is that person? Right. Who's going to help you with that? usually a NAM certified menopause practitioner or somebody in your community who's very comfortable with hormones and is willing to kind of, that's where kind of the expert experts come in of like, hey, I follow guidelines, but it's also individual based, right? So are there people out there that are going to say, yeah, you're a great candidate? Yes. Are there people out there who are going to be like, sorry, you missed your 10 year window. Nope. You don't get any, What you want is that nuanced person to be like, let's look at your heart risk. Are you up to date on your mammograms? Are you up to date on your colonoscopies? Are you as absolutely healthy as you can be? And then do you accept that? Yes, there's some risks to taking hormones, but for you, the benefits, it's like anything in life, right? Risk benefits. There's risks of getting in a car, but the benefits of driving a car is exceptional, right? So we're willing to accept that rare, unfortunate risk of driving in a car. And so it's really that risk benefit. That we don't have time to like, you know, we have time today because we're doing a live podcast on it, but like to really suss out of like, there's always risk to taking meds and we can't always appreciate that in like a five minute, 10 minute doctor visit. Right. Um, and certainly the benefit of meds is, is worth it. We just don't know individually who's, who's the right candidate. But I I think a healthy woman who's educated, who understands there's risks, but understands there's benefits is a great person to have that discussion with. Mm -hmm. If you came in and you're like, well, I'm on my second stroke. I've had three heart attacks. I've got a heart stent. I can't quit the cigarettes, you know, and I haven't done any of my mammograms. So I have no idea that I have healthy breasts. Like that's If you're like, who's the wrong person to start hormones on? It's that person. Mm -hmm. So
1: I think my biggest health challenge is all based around menopause. I mean, and I'm truly embarrassed that I have not addressed any of this sooner and have just listened to mainstream. And, you know, I don't know.
0: Our society has done a very good job of scaring women Mm -hmm. and making women live their life scared. Yeah, They're just so, they're so scared. And it's just what I see every day in clinic, but they're so scared that they're not even willing to comprehend that there might be something that could make their life better. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, so much of the education is like just understanding the data that nothing's perfect, but can we, and and is a woman's quality of life important? I would say absolutely it is, you know, it's her body image and her brain and her bone health. And I mean, even just the osteoporosis women who are on hormones, they can decrease their osteoporosis risk by 50%. Now hormone, estrogen is not a treatment for osteoporosis at this point. It's not FDA approved for that. Um, but I think that we're going to see more and more data saying optimize your bone health as much as you can, which includes estrogen. You know, going forward. So, and you know, I think the other old myth is that hot flashes are temporary. Most people are done with them in two years. Just live with it, and you'll be fine. I have women in their seventies are still having horrific hot flashes. This, this, these women have been suffering for twenty years. You know, I still get
1: them, not as yeah. often, but I still get them.
0: Yeah, you know how how is that fair? We've we've totally, you know, ignored them because our belief was, oh, hot, these hot flashes are temporary. It's a thing, and then you're done. But it's like, no, there's there's risks again. Risk benefit, right? There's risks of not being on hormones. There's risks of being on hormones, and so it's really kind of that nuanced complexity, which I don't think is scary, right? Because that's the conversations I have all the time, of like, yeah, it's nuanced, but ultimately this is your life and you know, how do you want to, how do you want to live it? So I'd say find the right person to have the, that conversation with. And, um, they, you, they probably, again, without me knowing your health history, it's not crazy for you to say, is this okay?
1: Yeah. I'm not on any medication. I don't have, um, I mean, I'm pretty recent on mammograms. I have not had a colonoscopy. I kind of refused to do it. So that might be one thing, but, um, and I'm active. I hike and rock climb three to four times a week. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think it's a bad conversation for you to have. I would encourage you to go find somebody to have it. Okay. And then prolapse is separate, separate, but important. I mean, I deal with prolapse every single day is it's quality of life issue, right? First of all, is it impairing bladder function? Is it impairing sexual function? Is it impairing, hey, I I don't enjoy hiking as much anymore because I got this this tennis ball between my thighs, right? So it's a quality of life issue meaning you don't have to do anything about it. A lot of women will have prolapse. They have no idea they have prolapse. So if it doesn't bother you, we don't have to do anything if it's not impairing function. What we know, a study just came out that sexually active women have better sexual life or you know ability to enjoy their sexuality if they have surgery for prolapse versus if they were to wear a pessary with, with a prolapse. So pessary is just like an orthotic. You get it fit in a clinic, kind of like a knee brace or an ankle brace. You could remove it easily. So if you don't want to sleep with it, or you can take it out for sexual activity or, you know, for whatever reason, but that's basically like you either get the knee replacement or you wear the knee brace, right? It's like, you can do surgery for it, or you can wear an orthotic for it, or if it doesn't bother you at all, you don't have to do anything. Certainly if somebody offered you you know going back just for general education for everybody options for prolapse for surgery is you can close the vagina, right? So you close the sock, so the sock can't go inside out. That's called a copuloclysis. That just the way you're describing it. That sounds like what was offered. Like, hey, I can just close your vagina. Can't have penetrative intercourse afterwards, but it's a pretty simple, straightforward procedure. So certainly, let's say I have an older woman that I'm worried about anesthesia, and I don't want her to have a big stressful surgery, and she's not sexually active. That's where kind of that 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 option comes in. Um, Vaginal repair, pretty straightforward. Outpatient surgery, just fix the weakness like a hernia, no mesh. Um, Recovery is pretty quick. And then you have the robotic sacral colpopexy, which you go in through the abdomen using the robot and the laparoscope. That's a piece of mesh in the abdomen to pull it up. So you can either push up prolapse or you can pull it up right? So you pull it up. I tend to save that for a failed vaginal approach just because it's more invasive. It's in the abdomen. There's a piece of mesh involved. So you have to accept the risks of having mesh, um, kind of a more advanced surgery, but very durable, great success rate with that just across the board. So certainly if you say, Hey, I'm at the point where this bothers me enough that I want to do surgery. You still have a couple of options. Um, physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy is great for mild cases of prolapse, Meaning that physical therapy can't like anti-gravity, you know, something that's all the way out, they can't put it all the way back in, right? But say it's something where, well, it's just there after I've been on like a three mile hike, or it's just there at the end of the day when I've been working in my garden. So they can work on strengthening and lifting exercises just to make it less bothersome and to kind of teach you how to lift properly, right? So much, so many times when we lift, we push down through our pelvis versus engaging the core lifting in a way where we're not kind of pushing down. So physical therapy has a big role in just teaching and getting you stronger. So I always, any of my people who do surgery for prolapse, I encourage two things post-op to help preserve your repair. One is vaginal estrogen and vaginal estrogen. Again, we were talking about systemic hormones earlier. Vaginal estrogens, just local vaginal skin hormones. Anybody can start that at any age. It doesn't matter how long it's been since menopause. Just to clear that up for the listeners, because I know that always comes up. I would say you've got an 83 year old who has whatever pelvic floor issue. I'm going to start her on vaginal estrogen. That's low dose. That's not in your bloodstream. No, but nothing above your pelvis is seeing that. So Vaginal estrogen, because it preserves collagen and the strength of the tissues, right? I want those tissues to be healthy as you age, so they're not more likely to prolapse again. And then pelvic floor physical therapy, because I always tell women, I can repair a bulge, but I didn't make you stronger, right? And that's the role of pelvic floor physical therapy, to be like, how's my core? When I lift, do I push down through my pelvis or do I engage my core so I lift safely, um, and then they just get you back to say, well, I really love doing X, Y, and Z. How do I do that, but still preserve my prolapse repair? So most, of, most prolapse, it, it, again, prolapse is just a hernia, right? It's just a weakness in the tissues. So I always compare it. Everybody knows about a man's uh, you know, inguinal hernia, right? You repair his hernia, he can blow it out again, meaning a hernia can come back. And over the course of a woman's life, recurrence rates tend to be about 20 to 30% again, we didn't fix gravity. We didn't fix that you walk upright. We didn't fix that you poop and you cough and you lift. You know, there's grandbabies you're going to want to throw around at some point. So all of those things that put pressure on the pelvis. So certainly repairs can, can recur.
1: And as far as um, sexual activity or intercourse with the prolapse?
0: uh, That's a great question. So many people have that question. You're not making it worse. You're not hurting it. Most prolapse goes away when you're laying down, right? So uh, even uh, uh, most partners won't notice it. Um, It doesn't usually affect a partner's function. Um, And I I think uh, partners and women's, their biggest fear is that they're going to hurt it or they're going to make it worse. That's not true. Okay. Yep. Do it, do whatever you want. I, I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's more just like a body image issue. But then I see a lot of women who are like, yeah, no, it's fine. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't affect my sexuality at all.
1: Yeah. It's a little, it's embarrassing to me a
0: little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a badge of When men have hernias, it's a badge of honor because they're like, look how strong I am. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. women have prolapse, they're like, oh my gosh, it's a, you know, personality flaw. But I'm like, you birthed three amazing human beings. Like 50% mm-hmm. of the population can't even do that skill. Yeah. Like, badge of honor. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's <laughs> super helpful. Thank you.
0: Awesome. All right, best of luck. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Would you please comment on the generic Uvafem compared to brand name Vagrafem? I love the convenience of a tablet and I do have the cream for when I remember to use it. Um, I think generic the ge- I- for the most part, generic and brand name vaginal estrogen products are pretty darn equivalent. Um, brand name tends to be more expensive, so I always like. Um, oh, that was Pauline's question. Awesome, cool, thanks. Um, I think that generics better because it's cheaper, but I don't think you're losing any quality or anything like that. Um, I think the tablet. Is it's great for the people that it's great for, but if you're still having symptoms, it might just not be enough. The other downside with the tablet, I have a cream bias, and the reason is you can put the cream on your clitoris and your vulva, and especially for vulva owners who do penetrative intercourse, that six o'clock, you know that uh, if you think of a clock in your vulva, right? So the six o'clock, which is the bottom middle, gets very very dry and tight with genital urinary syndrome of menopause. We just get a lot of atrophy there. I want more blood flow. I want more collagen. I want that skin to be as flexible and non-painful as possible. And you can put the cream there versus just putting a tab into your vagina and hoping a little bit of estrogen gets there. So that's why I do have a cream bias for, especially for people who have penetrative, like on insertion intercourse if they need more estrogen there you can also put the estrogen cream on your clitoris to just get a little bit more hormones around your organ of pleasure and you can, of course with a tab you can't do that um so i am yeah i'm not opposed to the tabs at all i just think it's underdosing for some people and then you can't target the vulva like you can target it with a cream I, my my thing in clinic is giving um putting sunscreen, a tab of sunscreen in your ear and hoping your face gets covered. is like, I'm not convinced that a tab of vaginal estrogen up on the inside the vagina is going to get everywhere, but that's okay. Okay. What's the likelihood of cancer from testosterone? My physician commented that the medication wasn't covered, uh, didn't work. And besides it was likely to cause cancer. Interesting. Okay. So there's not a lot of great data that testosterone causes cancer. Um, for the majority of people. So if that was the case, I mean, so think of all the people we give testosterone to, right? So men who've lost both their testicles to testicular cancer, we give them testosterone. We don't say you can't have it because it causes cancer, right? The other people we give a high dose testosterone to are trans men, right? So they're born with female levels of testosterone. They choose to take male doses of testosterone. And we have not seen, to my knowledge, an increased risk of cancer in this population. So I would just question that testosterone causes cancer in general, um, just like estrogen doesn't cause cancer, right? But some people think it does, doesn't mean it's true. So yeah, I, I would happily argument argue that testosterone causes cancer. Um, and that was with a conference with the new guy and doctor with my wife. Yeah. And here's the other thing. Okay. So, so what you're saying is this was testosterone to be dosed at female doses, right? So step back for everybody, everybody, every human, male, female, non-binary, all humans make testosterone. Men make 10 times the amount of testosterone as women, but women still make testosterone more than estrogen, actually, which will blow everybody's mind. We just stereotype hormones, right? So we stereotype that testosterone for men and estrogens for women. And then what that means is women are incapable of having testosterone and shouldn't have testosterone supplementation. So what happens in perimenopause and postmenopause is women's estru- uh, women's testosterone, which is made by the ovary, ovary and adrenal glands make testosterone starts to slowly go down uh, and goes down kind of slower than that estrogen. When the estrogen's low enough, you'll stop cycling and stop having periods, right? Testosterone continues to kind of go down in the years after that. But if there is a hormone involved in libido, if you were to say, pick one, pick the biggest one that's involved in testosterone in libido, it's or in libido and sex drive, it's testosterone more, more so than estrogen. Um, so in this question, we are, what we're asking is, is giving a woman uh, female doses of testosterone going to cause cancer? Well, she had that level of testosterone in her thirties, right? Twenties, thirties, possibly some of her forties. And testosterone supplementation in older women is just to get them back to that testosterone, right? Not super high. So you're not asking to super supplement testosterone. You're just saying, can I have the testosterone I had when I had a great sex, sex life? Um, and there's no data to say that that causes cancer. Now, if you read the literature, it'll say, hey, more data is needed. But we have decent long-term data as far as you know, five years, five to 10 years on women taking testosterone. And it's looking like it's pretty darn safe. So again, we can always say more studies are needed, but to say testosterone causes cancer is I'd say missing the mark. Okay. Hello, if you use vaginal estrogen and you rub it in, how long do you have to wait to have sex? Also are mood and brain fog valid reasons for HRT? Thank you. Great question. I would just make sure that the estrogen cream's absorbed, it's rubbed in. You know, it's kind of like you're rubbing if you're rubbing in sunscreen at some point, you're not transferring the sunscreen to other people. In an ideal world, you're gonna put the estrogen cream on before you know, right before you go to bed when you're not gonna have sex. Just you don't want any transference to your partner. Just like men who take testosterone, if they take testosterone as a systemic cream, they advise them to not touch. Uh, people who don't need that testosterone, like prepubertal children and women. Um, But I haven't actually seen like, it's 25 minutes. (laughs) I haven't seen like an actual, like strict, like put your estrogen cream on, set a timer and then have sex. Like I've not seen that. So I just say like in general, if you get, and the other thing about estrogen cream is it's really only two or three times a week. So it's not like every day you're like, oh, I got to break up my sex and my estrogen cream. Like, God bless you if that is your problem, because most people are like, whoa, that's not my problem. Um, So, yeah, I hope that I hope that was helpful. Are mood and brain fog valid reasons for hormone replacement therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So many women are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs when likely hormone therapy would have just done the trick. Um. And the menopause experts will say that antidepressants are not first-line therapy for mood changes and perimenopause and menopause, but rather hormones are. So I think it's a very legitimate. Now, are you? is there an FDA indication for estrogen and mood changes and brain fog? No, but so many women, countless women have said, like, I was not myself. And now I am. Now, the other thing you can, can say is that estrogen is FDA approved for vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Vasomotor symptoms are hot flashes, night sweats. And if you're sleeping poorly because of your menopause symptoms, you're going to have mood changes and brain fog just because of your poor sleep. Right. So I think you can even like extrapolate of like, yeah, treat the, treat the menopause symptoms, your brain fog, just getting enough proper sleep certainly helps mood and brain fog. So I hope that was challenging, challenging to the, uh, the reason why you can or can't be on it. So the next person asks, what are pellets and are they effective? So pellets are a way to, um, give hormone therapy. They tend to, again, I am uh, overgeneralizing, but they tend to be expensive. Um, They tend to be irreversible. So they're in there until they wear off. They tend to, you know, people will market them as like individually dosed or for you, but they tend to, there's data on this pellets tend to have more side effects um, than if you don't use pellets. Pellets are not FDA approved. So let that, let that soak in. But so the, the, the experts say, why, why would you use pellets if you can use an FDA-approved product? Which usually, again, testosterone isn't uh, usually covered by insurance, but the FDA-approved product for testosterone dosed at the female dose is dirt cheap. So to me, I, I'm frugal. I'm like, why wouldn't you want to use that um, instead of a, a pellet? So that's, that's the question of what pellets are. Let's see. What else can we, get? benefits of pelvic floor physical therapy. Yeah. Well, I think we just talked about that as far as prolapse goes, um, body awareness, huge benefit of pelvic floor physical therapy, decreasing, uh, bladder leakage, huge. There's lots of data on the risk of sexual dysfunction in women who leak urine, whether it's overactive bladder or stress incontinence a body image issue. It's a self-consciousness issue. It's just feeling like your pelvis is in good shape to have sex, all the different reasons. And physical therapy can really help with bladder leakage. Um, Physical therapy can help a lot with dyspareunia, which means pain with sex. They are the premier people to help with vaginal dilation, getting comfortable with penetration They find all the muscle trigger points that cause pain. So I'd say top five reasons. Let's see if I can think of a top five reason for pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, Pain, both male and female. They're great with testicular pain, penile pain, scrotal pain, hip pain, low back pain. So pelvic floor physical therapy helps with that. Um, Number two, bladder leakage. Number three, prolapse. Uh, number four would be pain with sex. And I said a top five. So now I have to think of another thing. What else can pelvic floor physical therapy help with? Oh, trouble emptying your bladder, right? Or just overactive bladder. They can also, so underactive and overactive bladder. Um, have, so many people teach themselves, not consciously, but they teach themselves to like push and strain with urination. Here's the thing. Bladders are like little funnels. They're not circles or they're like cups, right? So there's always a little bit of pee left. This is for any anybody. Um, And so people teach themselves that if they push a little bit at the end, like a little more pee comes out and then they tell their, and then they think like, oh, that must mean my bladder doesn't empty all the way. No bladder empties to zero. There's always a little bit left. That's totally normal. So a lot of times I have to send people to pelvic floor physical therapy to try to like unteach this voiding behavior that they've taught themselves, Right. So that'd be another, another reason. Do I see patients virtually for hormone treatment? Um, Hormone treatment for the most part, the second part of this question was, I'm guessing it's not covered by my insurance. Menopause hormone treatments. Yes. is covered by insurance. Absolutely. Testosterone is not usually, but testosterone is dirt cheap. Um, I only see people in Washington state. So sorry. Or yay to the people. How many people live in Washington State? I think like 10 million. Um, is pelvic floor physical therapy done in person or exercises given to do at home? Yeah, that's a great question. So COVID certainly, when everything shut down, right? A lot of PTs did offer over the phone stuff. There is nothing like having a human make sure you're doing the exercises properly. When we say Kegels and so we think Kegels, a lot of people will tighten their butt muscles, like their like their um, glutes right? That's not a Kegel. A Kegel is really a lifting of the pelvic floor and to have somebody provide you with the feedback that you're doing the exercises properly. That's the value. So many people are like, Oh, just give me some exercises. I'll do it at home. It's like, well, I can read a book about Spanish, but like to actually have a conversation with somebody to like, make sure I'm speaking the language properly is just going to get you so much farther Because the last thing you want to do is try exercises at home and fail it. And then you think that physical therapy doesn't work, right? Instead of like, no, you just didn't go speak with a fluent person to make sure you were speaking the language properly. Can incontinence be treated at home? Yes. So see your pelvic floor physical therapist, but then take your exercises home. Um, There's also a lot of pelvic floor trainers that now have apps on the phone. So they're kind of like little... um, no, dildos or vaginal, we'll call it a vaginal insert. It sounds, sounds less sexual. Um, and then there are these new pants. I forget what they're called. They're not paying for my podcast at this point. I don't know if they work or not, but man, they're all over social media. You put on these like bike shorts and they, they deliver Kegels for you. Um, so another kind of home incontinence treatment. Don't know how well they work yet. Haven't seen a lot written up uh in the urology literature for that so stay tuned um but yes incontinence can be treated at home let's see next question views on viagra i think any medication that can help improve sexuality is good i i, I don't think I, i'm not sure exactly what you're asking when you say views on viagra like am i pro viagra <laughs> um it's pretty cheap at this point. It's helped a lot, a lot of men with their confidence and being able to be sexually active as they age. The biggest problem with Viagra, if you were like, what's your, what's the biggest problem with Viagra? The biggest problem with Viagra is we're only addressing it you now in heterosexual relationships, right? The biggest problem with Viagra is we're only addressing half of the sexually active couple. And that's a big disservice to the entire relationship. Because if you give a man a tool that allows him to have an erection and therefore usually be aroused, because for men, an erection is an arousing, triggers the brain to be aroused for sex. If you give a man that, and then you completely, first of all, did he ever talk to his partner about like, does she want that? Does she want more sex? What feels good for her? How can she get more aroused, better? More aroused, better? More aroused, better? Just kidding. Um... So the biggest problem with Viagra is we're not having the conversation to support the entire sexual relationship. Um, It's really one-sided and that is unfortunate. Um, It'd be, it'd be nice for Viagra to help women. So, you know, the question, the second question is, well, can women just take Viagra? Remember how Viagra works. Viagra increases blood flow to the erectile tissues, so number one, women have erectile tissues. That's great. But number two, even when we increase blood flow to women's vulva owners, erectile tissue, it doesn't always stimulate desire or arousal. Now that's called, uh, arousal, Is that arousal desire non-concordance, or am I confusing it with something else, but basically like blood flow in a woman doesn't always trigger like, Hey, I'm interested in having sex. Right. So it, whereas in men, it's a lot more aligned. you you, uh, you engorge the erectile tissue in a male and it triggers his brain, like, hey, think about sex right now. Whereas a woman, and they've done very fascinating studies on this, right? Where they increase her blood flow to her pelvis and she's like, yeah, no, 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 still something's happening down there. We're still not interested in sex, right? So a little more dissociated than, which is not good or bad, not judging, just saying that's why Viagra doesn't work as well because Viagra is not an arousal medication, it's a blood flow medication. Which in men tends to trigger arousal because an erection and desire for sex tend to be linked more in men than women. So I hope that that was useful. Okay, I'm gonna see if I can do like one more question. We're gonna call it a day. Is progesterone necessary if taking vaginal estradiol? Wow, that's a quick question. People who've been following me know the answer. No, you need, why do we need progesterone? If we're taking systemic estrogen, systemic estrogen can cause hyperproliferation or thickening of the uterine lining, which rarely, but can increase your risk for uterine cancer, uh, unopposed estrogen, increased risk of uterine cancer by about five to 10%. If you look at very old studies where we did this to women before we knew that progesterone was protective against it. So you give her progesterone because you want to protect the uterus. Great. Great. How can you do that? Oral micronized progesterone or an IUD? Um, compounded cream progesterone is not effective. We have data to show that those women who take it, uh, compounded like cream progesterone, aren't protecting their uterus very well. Progesterone is very poorly absorbed cutaneously. So you either need progesterone on an IUD like a Marina or the other uh, progesterone IUDs or oral. The oral one can be sedating. It's recommended to take it at night, but it's great for people who have trouble sleeping. So if you're just on vaginal estrogen, which is just localized estrogen that really anybody at any point post-menopause can take or perimenopause or breastfeeding or whatever other reason your doctor might want to give you vaginal estrogen, you do not need to take progesterone because it's so stinking low dose. It doesn't affect the uterine lining. Let's see. That was an easy one. We'll try to do one more. Is there, is it a thing to apply estradiol to the face or neck? Are there estrogen creams recommended for the face? Great question. Uh, Not well studied. I have, and I have not backed this up with like recent research. I have heard of, there was some over-the-counter estrogen face cream that was giving women a lot of side effects. Um, So I wouldn't say it's recommended. Systemic estrogen in and of itself is great for collagen, great for hair, great for nails, um, less wrinkles. Is that an FDA approved indication for systemic estrogen? No, but it's a nice side effect. Um, so right now I, I cannot say that there is a safe approved estrogen product. Now, either is uh, there are products marketed to perimenopausal and menopausal women with plant-like estrogens in their cream. I think it's brilliant marketing Does it actually do anything? The dermatologist will probably tell you no, Um, just because it doesn't, wrinkles are, I'm not a dermatologist, but they come from the outside in and the inside out, right? So like the deep lack of collagen is more of a systemic inner inner work, any sort of like lotion is not going to make a difference on that. So I would not do that. All right, you guys, I'll do one more. Okay. What exactly, should this question's too good. What exactly should I ask for when I want to get my hormones tested? I would go to your doctor and I'd say, hey, I'm experiencing these symptoms. I wonder if they're due to perimenopause or menopause. I've been reading a lot about it. And I'm wondering, I know getting my labs tested is not perfect, but I'm wondering if I can just kind of see where I am with that. And if, the, if you get a yes, great. And if you get a no, I would say, uh, be like, hey, I'm just curious, why, why wouldn't you order those lab tests for me? What's the harm in getting them tested, right? But because you're an educated person, you know that there's no blood test for low libido, right? And you also know that a one-stop snapshot of your hormones doesn't always tell you where you are in perimenopause or if you're close to menopause or anything like that, FSH um, is probably the closest to telling you, hey, you're postmenopause because you're gonna have an elevated FSH, again, trying to get your ovaries to do their jobs um, just to see where you are. But I'd say a lot of doctors would probably, with that approach, you know, kindness, loving kindness, and curiosity goes a long way in building a good rapport with your doctors. I swear at some point I'm gonna write a little like booklet for my website of how to talk to your doctor. Um, but that's I would just say curiosity like go in with the information you have and what's your trouble question you're trying to answer. Doctors are trained to, when we order a test, we're trying to answer a question, right? So we don't just order tests because like, I don't know what to do. Let me order some tests. Sometimes they they do that, but we're trying to answer a question, right? So usually just checking my labs for checking my labs. You're like, well, what question are, what are you going to get from checking that? right? So if you say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing hot flashes and some mood changes. I think at age 46, I wonder if I'm in perimenopause. I know there's no great labs for perimenopause, but I'm wondering if we can kind of just see where my estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and FSH are. And while you're at it, why don't we check a thyroid to make sure this isn't a thyroid issue? Because sometimes that can be what's going on. All right, my loves, that was our February live podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, wait, hold on. Questions. Can you take oral progesterone vaginally? It's a, it's a great question. It's a little, uh, what's the word? Unorthodox, but if you're getting a lot of side effects from oral progesterone, it is an option. Um, probably talk to an expert about it, but yeah, some people will do that. Um, I think I just answered the question about the hormones. Would I ever consider doing a sex ed episode for older teens and young adults? Oh, yeah. I totally should do that. Thank you for the tip. I actually just interviewed a woman today who teaches adults how to talk to kids about sexuality. So that'll be a podcast episode coming out. Um, this is what I'm thinking. I'm putting it out into the podcast universe. I'm thinking of some sort of like podcast membership where you can actually sit in the audience while I do these interviews with people, which I think would be super fun to do. And then, like, you would get access to those interviews, like as I'm doing them, because when I interview people, like right now I, I have set up for March, like two interviews that I did in November. <laughs> so like a benefit of the private podcast membership would be like, as I'm interviewing people, like you're in on the live action at that time. So give me feedback on that. Would you guys be interested in some sort of like podcast membership where that's, that is like, I haven't seen that even be an option for any podcast. I just think it would be so cool to be able to sit in on these interviews as they're happening. So I don't know. I'm brainstorming. I like doing it. All right, my loves. Thank you so much for being here. And I will podcast. Thank you so much. Love you. Until next time.